this is Gene Nathan, and uh, this is Crosstown Conversations. And um, I, I gotta tell you, uh, tonight's show is um, pretty intense. Um, I have lined up, and I, I hope everybody makes it, but um, I have lined up two amazing authors. The first one is a gentleman by the name of Jack E. Davis who is a professor of history at the University of Florida and the author of the book, The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea, which is the winner of the 2018 Pulitzer Prize in History. And his book, which I have just begun to delve into, is phenomenal. And I have to say that book and the second book that we are going to talk about, and hopefully um, I will hear from the author, Jeff Goodell, is called The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. I, I know you all have heard so much about climate change, um, both pro and con, uh, in the past couple of years. And it's nothing new for us because we've been dealing with it, and we're very, very conscious of it ever since, especially Katrina. It wasn't like we weren't already thinking about it. I mean, I've been working with a group called America's Wetland for five years before that, and we were very much focused on coastal erosion, which is a big part of what's happening with climate change. But it's getting more intense. In fact, um, I'm going to, first of all, um, Jack, are you there? I am here, yes. Oh, Jack, you sound so loud and clear like you're just down the block when, if I'm not mistaken, you're all the way up in New Hampshire, am I right? Uh I am up in New Hampshire, and uh, you guys have finished with pollen, pollen season, and it's just beginning here. <laughs> oh, right. Well, uh, it doesn't ever really quite finish here, I can tell you, as, a, so, as, as someone right. who suffers from those, allergies. Those, those, those damn uh, live oak trees, boy, they, they uh, create a lot of habit, don't they? Well, you know what? They are so beautiful, and I sit on my they front are. porch every morning and watch the sun come up amongst their uh, branches and love them so much. And I, I, I don't even know if I would love New Orleans as much without them, as much as we have so many cultural and architectural and natural riches, those oak trees are something else. But listen, I want to just call your attention. I don't know whether you saw some of today's news, uh, but I read a news feed called Axios. I don't know whether you pick up on that A-X-I-O-S. But they're, they, they do this kind of, you know, the 10 big things is kind of how they do it. And so their first thing today says one big thing, Antarctica's coastal nightmare. And it says Antarctica is shedding ice at an increasing rate, raising global sea levels and threatening coastal cities. Axios Science editor Andrew Friedman reports citing a new study published in Nature. The safety of the coastal populations, including growing megacities worldwide, is inextricable, inextricably tied to the fate of Antarctica's ice sheet. Until a few years ago, it was assumed to be far more stable than the Greenland ice sheet, and we know how a big part of that collapsed not too long ago. The faster and more significantly that Antarctica melts due to global warming, the higher the seas will rise. And here are the numbers. The West Antarctic ice sheet saw its melt rate increase from 53 billion tons per year to 159 billion tons a year during the 1992 to 2017 period. 
And then there's a quote here from one of the scientists, and it says, the results from Antarctica are a clear sign that we woke up a sleeping giant. We do not want the giant to start walking. Now, before we delve into that, I, I just want to open with um, a paragraph. I don't know if you saw my newsletter, but I couldn't resist having delved into your book just recently and opening with this paragraph where you describe how Winslow Homer, one of our early American painters, um, described the Gulf, and he compared it to the Atlantic. So Homer's Atlantic is a roaring, agitated, giant gray and intense, stirring with waterspouts, thrashing seas, and sharks. Its coastline is a, dis a display of crashing well, uh, waves on jagged rocks as dark and turbulent as the sky above. Human subjects often struggle against the cross currents of cold remoteness, for the Atlantic is less place than entity, bearishly expansive and disengaged. Already, my listeners, you can tell what a terrific writer this man is and why he got a Pulitzer Prize for this book. By contrast... Homer, the painter's gulf, is described as a sea of another color with a cordial disposition. The water lies flat and serene in his paintings, except when a fish jumps to throw a hook. But this is thrill, not threat. The angler's boat continues to drift at ease, his fishing line drawn back in a flourish, and in the white cloud sky, birds peaceably ride invisible updrafts on open wings. Now, those of us who live near the coast, which includes a lot of people, you may have a number, I don't have the total number, and, and I'm a transplant from the East Coast, from that surging Atlantic, um, and of course the Gulf looks exactly to me as it's described here, but having, of course, also lived now through Katrina, I, I, I know how that placid, beautiful, calm surface can suddenly explode. And so you never feel quite so calm about it, again, having seen what it can do. So, Jack, you have in your book traced a history from the time when the people who lived on the coast were, I, I love that story about this, the people who lived here called the Calusa. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. The Calusa. So they were an indigenous group of people who lived in the area, or as far as we know, indigenous, because maybe they came from Central America or someplace else, but they were there for thousands of years. And their, their diet was so rich in protein because they had all those delicious sea creatures that we all still love to eat as their, their diet mainstay. And um, they were pretty ferocious folks, but they lived with that environment and not against it. And I think it would be fair for me to characterize how you feel we, we um, Europeans and others who have come since, have dealt with it in an against it fashion. That's not very good English, but not with it, but against it. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that's ultimately what happens. I mean, the difference between uh, modern society or European society and then American society and the indigenous 
indigenous societies, the in, intense commercial trade. And, I, you know, I don't want to demean commercialism. I mean, that's what keeps our economy thriving. That's what gives us our, our, our quality of life. But um, I think that in, in a, if we are pursuing uh, extracting commercial products from the Gulf of Mexico, which we do, obviously, and that's okay. We take a lot from the Gulf of Mexico, but we need to get something back at the same time. And, and, and it's not, actually not a lot, and that's our respect for what makes the Gulf this living, giving sea. Um, and, and, of course, that's the, uh, the estuarine environment of the Gulf of Mexico, one of the richest in the world. Uh, it's, those, it's the rivers that that uh, facilitate that estuarine environment are very much a part of that estuarine environment. Um, and it's a respect for the biodiversity of, of the Gulf of Mexico, which includes us, which includes humans as well. And that's really not asking a lot. But when we pollute those rivers that uh, run down, and 85% of the fresh water that runs in the Gulf of Mexico comes out of the five gulfs or runs through the five gulf states, um, consequently giving us, blessing us, blessing us, if you will, um, with the, 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 you know, the, the richest part of that estuarine environment. Um, and, but as well, if we're polluting those rivers, if we are, you know, engaging in these engineering projects like the 10,000 miles of oil and gas industry canals running through the Louisiana coast, we're diminishing what the Gulf can give us. And if we step back and let nature be itself, it's going to give us so much more than when we try to manage it, when we, and then, of course, when we diminish it. So... <laughs> um the the canals of course are part of the story and um i I often tell people that in 1973 i was a reporter for the nbc affiliate here wdsu and i went out to do a story about living without energy um and it was because of the oil crash at that time and i don't remember the economics of that was so complicated but it was driven in part by OPEC policies, and um, in the course of my travels around the state, finding people who were living, you know, with generators and, and with just off the grid, basically, um, I came across a crab fisherman and um, asked him how he was, you know, just passed him in the water um, on my way to and from working with some nutria um, hunters. And um, he said, lady, if you're going to do any story at all, you better talk about these canals and how they are allowing salt water to destroy our marshes. So that was 1973. Yeah. And that hit me between my eyes, and I started going to EPA conferences where the subject never came up. And, of course, today we still are debating what the causes of our coastal erosion in Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast are, and we're still debating what the solutions are. And, and I know that that's what I really want to talk about as we go through this, but I, one of the things that I just, you know, flipping through your book, trying to get a feel for some of the different phases of the history of the Gulf, because that's what you deal with. You, you're, you're talking about the Gulf from way back, from when it reached up as far as, as um, practically Chicago um, to today. And, and one of the passages, one of the sections that 
caught my attention. I don't know why, maybe because I'm a woman. And um, there was a fashion uh, for, for a bit. Let me see, when was that? It was the late 1800s. Um, for big, fancy women's hats covered with feathers. And um, here's the line that kind of capsulizes it. It says, so it's little wonder that killing birds for hats amounted to one of the bloodiest crimes committed against wildlife in modern times, equal to the destruction of North American bison and beaver. Well, I don't think a lot of us think a lot about that. I, I have actually heard that before, but it's not something I focused on. And you have a, a, a another sentence here that kind of really is so ironic. It says, designers' favorites and feathers were long, lithe ones, like those of the egress and herons and, how do you pronounce it, Ibises, wood, ibises, yeah. ibises, wood storks, spoonbills, and flamingos, any of the large wading birds who we all tend to look on and admire and adore here. And um, I actually live on a block on Esplanade where I guess climate change has resulted in a rookery of, um, I think they're called black-headed night herons, so mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of what's going on with our birds, and we just had a big birding phase here. Of course, this is the time when they come through. But that was just so um, – uh, uh, the notion that we were – there was a carnage going on of, of birds to put feathers on women's hats. So that's an, another sort of frivolous version of extracting oil and creating canals that – in their own way, have been destroying our coast. Uh, you know, I'm overwhelmed, honestly. Uh, I don't know where to start or finish. And I think one of the problems that a lot of people are having with all of this is that the numbers just keep sounding worse. And um, I, I'm not hearing the solutions. So walk me back. Take, Give me a few of the landmarks through your history that mark the lack of progress of time, let's say, how we have attacked our Gulf? Well, um, you, you know, later in the book you'll get more, uh, you'll encounter more of the, more of the solutions, but um, when you, you named uh, a, a pivotal moment in Gulf history uh, that marked that uh, regression, if you will, uh, and then, of course, is with the hat fashion industry. And and one person who was thinking a lot about that at the time was uh, was Edward Avery McElhaney, whose father, of course, um, developed, invented, if you will, Tabasco sauce. And Edward Avery McElhaney, um, the, the son, was more or less the person who turned Tabasco into the company that it is today in the late 19th century. But at the same time, he was very much a bird conservationist, and he saw the, the the snowy egrets disappearing from the Gulf because there have been so many that roosted on Avery Island. And if you go to Avery Island today, and I imagine many of your listeners have, you see the rookery there, and that's the rookery that he helped create way back in the 1890s um, to to restore the, uh, the the snowy egret population, and those. Very birds you see today are ancestors of the birds he helped save, and th th he found this very disturbing. And 
Um, he wrote numerous, countless articles on on bird conservation and on bird life, and he was an, he was very much an amateur ornithologist. And people from around the country, including educated, you know, trained ornithologists, consulted with him about because Edward Avery uh, McElhaney is a pioneer in establishing bird sanctuaries, uh, particularly mainly across the the northern Gulf. And so there are a lot of heroes like that. Uh, at least from my point of view, in, in, in the book, who are uh, react to um, the, the the destruction of the you know the the natural environment of the, uh, the the Gulf of Mexico, and which is not was obviously not unique to Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico. It's, it, this is what's happening across Western civilization. And um, but uh, there, wherever there is this destruction, there are always those people who respond, and many of them respond successfully. Um, and and for me, those are the people we need to focus on. Those are the events we need to focus on. Is is that backlash? You know, we have absolutely. I'll say it up front: the absolutely most corrupt, uh, backward narrow-minded, small-minded leader of the EPA right now, Scott Pruitt, and I do not hesitate in saying that because he absolutely is. But there's going to be a backlash. There's always, and during the Reagan administration, we had um, uh, the same sort of thing uh, going on, and the the membership in, in, in national environmental groups uh, never, I mean, exploded, and the number of local grassroots environmental groups exploded uh, as well against the, the, as a backlash against Reagan, but also James Watt, um, who was head of the, uh, of course, secretary of the, the Department of the Interior at the time. And I think that's what we'll, we'll see here as, as well. Um, despite, you know, the, the continued destruction, despite the, at, you know, I'm being very kind in saying indifference to environmental conservation and preservation coming out of Washington, um, uh, I, I think this may actually turn out to be a good era for for the environment. Well, you know, a lot of us who um, are just j- totally speechless at this point because we've said everything we can say about it um, over what's going on at the national level of, in politics are um, living with this optimistic, hopeful, uh, sense that it's it's going to drive a resistance, and of course we're watching the all, all of the voting right now very carefully to see in balance um, uh, are uh, people coming out to vote who will challenge um, the Scott Pruitts and, and other people like him in this in this federal administration. So yes, I I hope you're right, and 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 we say this a lot that it's the resistance. And it's, it's the backlash that, that really counts. But I want to read a little passage. I, I, I still kind of want to, you know, deal with the, the, with the denial that is such an underlying factor also that we're, we're going to have to fight all the way. And um, so in Jeff Goodell's book, The Water Will Come, have you read that yet? I have not read it, but I'm, I'm uh, probably going to sign it in a, a course this uh uh, fall that I teach on the history of water. Right. So <laughs> he he's got a, a, a passage in here that uh, has a has some of the shock value that the notion of killing a lot of birds for 
feathers for women's hats had. So he, he was in Florida, and um, he was at a conference, I guess it was, and um, he runs, oh, no, I know what he was. He was uh, some kind of a celebratory event for the new museum um, that was built with funding from a developer, sort of the Trump of Florida, so to speak, a guy named Perez. Um, let's see, Jorge Perez. And uh, Perez was a big developer, and and um, the author had been trying to reach him with, to no avail, and he turned out to be online with him waiting to sign the catalog of an artist who was featured in this show at this museum. And he says to uh, he, the journalist, um, uh, Mr. Goodell, Jeff Goodell, says mm -hmm. to the uh, Mr. Perez, can't pass up the opportunity to ask you a few questions. His face, the developer's face, turned stony. And um, the journalist says, how is sea level rise changing your thinking about the real estate business in South Florida? Mr. Perez replies, we don't think about it on a daily basis. Um, the journalist is surprised. He was so dismissive. Does it change your thinking about the kind of property you want to develop? Goodell asks, and Perez says, nope, it doesn't. Uh, does it change the design of the buildings you're building, says the journalist. And the developer says, nope, we build to the building code. Uh, did it influence the design of this museum, which, by the way, was designed in a very green way, as he describes in the book. Um, and the developer says, nope, that is not something I gave any thought to, he replied. Well, aren't you worried that the increased flooding in the city will impact the value of your real estate holdings? I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it, says the journalist. And the developer says, no, I'm not worried about that. He said, I believe that in 20 or 30 years, someone is going to find a solution for this. It is a problem for Miami. If it is a problem for Miami, it will also be a problem for New York and Boston. So where are people going to go? He hesitated for a moment. Then he added, besides, by that time, I'll be dead. So what does it matter? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of sad. I mean, uh, uh, the, 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 the complete indifference to the future, um, in, which obviously must include this developer's children or grandchildren, if, if he has any. Um, and, you know, right now, I mean, the great irony, and Goodell imagine talks about this, is that real estate prices in Miami have never been uh, higher, and um, even though this is a city and um, on the front lines of sea level rise, and it's the same thing in the Tampa-St. Petersburg area as well. It's it's considered by some studies one of the uh, considered the most vulnerable uh, metropolitan area to to sell, sea level rise in the Gulf of Mexico, and one of the top ten most vulnerable um, metropolitan areas. Um, but you know that's. I mean, and by the way, I'm sorry. Just the human I... species, right? We we are um, we are uh, this um, you know, this complex of contradictions and in um, uh, in irony, and we we constantly do we behave in ways that are just the opposite of that that logic suggests we should behave, and um, we react rather than um, prepare. Uh, for for these sort of things, and and of course, real estate developers are um, improvident people. They are thinking about tomorrow, being the media tomorrow. They're not they're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about the the to the, bay, to the uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, they come in. I mean, John D. McDonald, who I wrote write about my book, 
the the um, uh, the the the, uh, the novelist who sold you know 17, 72 million books, uh, suspense thrillers. He was also in the mid twentieth century, um, very much an activist voice against destruction of the environment. People inspired people like Carl Hyacinth, for instance, and uh, and he called these 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 folks um, uh, quick buckaroos. Uh, these these kind of developers, uh, slash and burn developers that came in and, and made the profit and they got the hell out and let let the others worry about um, the, the aftermath. Well, and let's move forward and talk about the oil industry, which is okay. is still so dominant and and certainly in my state, um, they 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 basically run the legislature in in many ways and. Um, we're 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 up against their policies and and they're not so far. I mean, I it, it's a mystery to me why if you're in the energy business you wouldn't be focused on the new forms of energy that are developing and and looking to the future and and not just um, trying to milk the very last drop of oil out of the ocean or the ground. Um, but explain to me what's going on in the minds uh, not that you're a mind reader but to the extent that you have been covering this also because this is another part of your book you you, you cover the whole territory um, you're talking about the the uh, oil industry and 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 what they've been doing with their channels and other um, techniques of, of dredging and and uh, capturing the the oil that's that's still left in the ground um, uh, where do you see a breakthrough with this industry? You know, that's that's a really tough question. It's, a, it's an important um, and good question, but uh, I, you know, I really don't have an answer to that as far as a, a breakthrough. I think the breakthrough may come, and I'm completely speculating here. I'm I'm a historian, so uh, I don't. That like to prognosticate because I often get myself into trouble when, when I do. But my sense is that um, when the oil, oil and gas industry realizes there's greater profit to be made in renewable energy, that will be the breakthrough. Um, but right now they are going to milk everything they can out of, you know, the, the, the traditional uh, forms of energy and the traditional ways of extracting it and delivering it uh, to to the market. Um, I, you know, I it, as far as the Gulf goes, I think um, unfortunately, fortunate obviously for many people who work in the industry and, and receive a paycheck and, uh, and benefits from an industry. Um, and that's the rub, right? You know, because it, in some ways it's it's been helpful for the economy and for individual people, um, but but in, for others it has not been that great. But uh, as far as the Gulf, um, you know, I, I think that the the industry will be in the Gulf for you know uh, decades uh, in doing what it's doing now, and even perhaps. Um, um, uh, amplifying its its efforts, or you know, heightening its efforts to to extract um, oil and gas. You know, I tried to get um, John Barry on the phone just uh, 
actually a couple of days ago and then again today because mm-hmm. I wanted to find out what the maybe you know the uh, latest status of his suit because what what he at least was trying to do was catch up with the um, the commitments that the oil industry had made to basically repair the damage that they create in the process of extracting oil. So the canals, of course, for one, that allow for all this saltwater intrusion. They were supposed to have uh, repaired them, closed them up. And, of course, they haven't done that. And so his suit went nowhere under um, Governor Jindal, who was extremely pro-industry. And, um, unfortunately, our current governor, who in many ways is a good guy and trying to do good things, seems to not be up for really challenging um, the industry's control of the Gulf. Um, It it seems like, um, you know, they're they're still not really um, making any progress. But have you heard anything about that suit? Do you know anything I don't know? You know, I haven't talked to John in a while, and um, I I think um, my impression is the same as yours, that um, things are sort of in limbo. The suit, the, the suit's not going anywhere. Um, I don't know what his plans are for a, a, appeal, um, and um, it's you know he's got he's got so many forces against him. Um, uh, I mean, again, despite the fact that you have a governor that is a huge improvement over Bobby Jindal, um, there's still you know, economic interests and bureaucracy that you have to deal with. And then, of course, case law also that may not, um, uh, that's established that may not be in, in his favor. Um, so I'm, you know, you have a given example. The state of Florida has been fighting Georgia for, um, a couple of decades now over the uh, Apalachicola River, and, and which is fed by the, the Chattahoochee River because the Army Corps of Engineers and uh, the city of Atlanta have been sending um, minimal fresh water flows down to the Apalachicola River and, and Apalachicola Bay, and plus not very clean water, um, and which has destroyed the, the premier oyster fishing industry in Apalachicola. And because of the multiple interests involved in, in the lawsuit and trying to provide Apalachicola uh, River with more fresh water, which the bay is starving for uh, and the oysters are starving for, um, it's just been this convoluted mess for decades. And, and that seems relatively simple when you think about what John Barry and others are trying to do um, to protect the, the coastal wetlands of, of Louisiana. And one thing that I don't think that people understand is that the coastal wetlands of Louisiana are not a wasteland, which is the traditional viewpoint of that magnificent, magnificent landscape that's unequaled in the United States um, and has few equals across the globe. That's an estuarine environment. That's not just uh, simply weeds crawling out of uh, the water. Uh, that's a cradle for for um, uh, so much marine life, and just um, an unimaginable, uh, you know, um, uh, quantities of marine life, and that's being destroyed by these canals. And not only is it destroying 
the environment is destroying a whole culture. It's destroying the livelihood of people that has existed for much longer than oil and gas. Um, and it's destroying a culture of people as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and I wish that that's something that could be factored into these, these legal suits. You know, um, uh, of course, I, I agree with everything you've just said. And I, I do actually feel that a lot of people in Louisiana do care for the coast and do see it as something beautiful and do understand it as, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but estuarine, is that how you'd say it? Estuarine, yeah. Estuarine. Um, I think that it, it just, it's, it's so hard to figure out how to compete with the lobbying power of an industry so rich and determined as the oil industry. And, and I just don't think there are, there are heroes left and right. It's not just a John Barry. Uh, for those of you in the audience, I think most of you know that he, he's the guy who got on the um, – first of all, he wrote a book called The Rising Tide. Is that the right name? And, um, yes, and thank you. Beautiful writer. He's, I mean, he's an inspiration yeah. for me as a writer. Uh, absolutely. Well, he he is a beautiful writer, and and he wrote about the 1927 flood in a way that evoked that experience in a way that um, people today, having lived now through Katrina and other flooding events all the time, uh, certainly can relate to. But um, I I think that there are heroes out there. There are people who care, but I think we all are a little bit flummoxed about uh, just um, how we feel we can really make a difference. I, I want to go back for just a second because you were talking about the estuarine, and, and there was another passage in your book that grabbed my attention that um, you know, when you were talking about these, again, these people who lived, um, the Calusa, um, uh, uh, they were tall in stature, which is something I don't think most of us think of the indigenous people being tall, but that's because they were eating all this great seafood. And uh, so it says here, since natural rises are rare on the Gulf Coast, natives used shell refuse to create high ground that their cultures typically accorded places of worship and political honor. Coastal dwellers were wise to natural conditions too and elevated their houses above tidal and expected storm surges. And upwear breezes might knock back biting insects. And then... Um, if you didn't have quite the riches that some might have, you would at least uh, pound log piles in the muck and build high and dry on those. And um, your architecture might be just a standard one-room round hut of pine, poles, palm, and grass thatch hut, um, grass thatch roofs and lattice walls, woven floor mats made out of the same material. It sounds pretty rudimentary, but again, they... they they lived well, and they did not uh, destroy um, the land as um, so much of the uh, heavier-duty kind of building we do today has, has um, accomplished in, in basically wiping out natural areas. Um, I, you know, <laughs> we could just keep going through this litany of, of terrible things that have happened, but and I, I don't want to do that for the entire time. Um, and and uh, we still have a good amount of time left, but not um, as much. I was hoping we were going to get uh, Jeff Goodell on the line, and, and he uh, was planned to be. But um, I don't know, dealing with um, Hachette books has not been the easiest task I've ever had as a 
as a um, broadcaster. Um, so uh, he hasn't materialized. Maybe we'll get him at another time. But um, take me forward a little bit. And, 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 and you're saying that you see hope. And um, for those of us, again, who lived through Katrina and, and so many uh, people who um, were kind of on a bus one day and out of here no, not to return um, so far and maybe someday but not yet, and now we have all kinds of uh, complicated sociological ripple effects of uh, gentrification happening because of people who heard so much about our culture and wanted to come here and at the same time uh, people who left suddenly um, have had a hard time figuring out how to come back because our housing stock dwindled and it became more expensive and all kinds of uh, ripple effects. How, how do you see this, where we are now? Let's, let's come up to the present. What, what uh, where are we in this, this uh, continuum that you've observed in, um, let's see, about 500 and some pages? Yeah, about 500 pages. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Beautifully well, written, um, so beautifully written. Well, well, thank you. And I think, and again, John Barry is a real inspiration. When I, when I need to go to good writing to remind me what good writing is, John Barry is somebody I turn to. One of one of many people, but uh, he's just he's just outstanding. So you guys have a real gem there in New Orleans, and and I think people uh, realize that. But but in any case, um, and I hope John's listening. <laughs> but uh, uh, but in any case, um, I, I think that we we have to be optimistic because pessimism doesn't move us forward, and awesome. optimism is something that does. And I, I be honest with you, I'm a, I'm a um, I'm a typically, I'm an inherently pessimistic guy, but um, but also I recognize the, re- the reality here. And one thing that gives me optimism is that, you know, I grew up on the Gulf of Mexico, and I'm in New Hampshire now, but I, I live in Florida most of the year. And uh, I grew up in the, on the Gulf of Mexico, and, and when I was a kid, in the 60s and the 70s, the, the bays and the bayous all around the Gulf of Mexico were um, virtually everyone was nearly a dead body of water. And the, um, uh, and, and, you know, it was the, the bird life was minimal. Uh, that's the only thing you'd catch, you know, in a bay uh, if you're fishing was, was a croaker. And you got really lucky, you, you caught a, a speckled trout. But those bays and bayous, which had lost, Many of them lost 60, 70, 80, in the case of the Scambia Bay in Pensacola, 95% of the seagrass beds. And when you don't have those seagrass beds, you're not going to have a fish. You're not going to have the dolphin chasing fish. You're not going to have the birds there uh, feeding on the fish. Uh, and you're not going to have a commercial seafood industry in those bays and bayous. You're not going to have recreation, recreational fishing in those, uh, those bays and bayous. You're going to have muck is what you're going to have. Um, but those bays have come back to life, and it's people at the local level, with the help of state, local and state, and federal government officials, uh, and also in, and also industries, I have to say, have pitched in tremendously across the Gulf, have brought those bays back to life. Um, when I was a kid, I never saw a wood stork in Florida. I never saw a bald eagle. Now they are all over the place because where there are fish, there are those kind of birds. And so I've seen what we can do. I've seen what people can do to bring those natural places back to life. And, those, and it's not just about the birds and the fish. 
that's our home. That's where we live. You know, if that if that environment supports the wildlife that cannot support us, if it contaminates the wildlife, if it destroys the wildlife, and then it hurts us. It hurts human health. Um, but there's the potential there to come back uh, from those those bad times and to restore it. You you step back and let nature have its opportunity to restore itself, and boom, it does. Uh, it's amazing how quickly it comes back and how, how robustly it comes back. Uh, and so that's what gives me hope because we also have people all around the Gulf Coast. Every every inland body of water has one or two groups that is there to help restore it, to help protect it, to stand up to be its voice. Um, and uh, and they have been very effective in the past, and I think they they will continue to be in the future. You know, I'm so tempted to – I could stop right here with those as the last words because they are so optimistic, and um, I know what you're talking about in, in the return – of the critters that you're you're speaking of and the conditions that have led to that because there has been a lot of really effective, deliberate work on the part of, at first, green folks and environmentalists who were considered on the fringe and now it's really hard, despite what's happening in Washington, to find a, a majority of people who don't care and, and uh, who, who rather um, uh, do care and want to make the right thing happen. However, I have to go back to this because this is the thing that um, I, I, I live in a household with an artist who's very environmentally conscious, Bob Tan, and has been making art about environmental issues for decades. And um, he, by the way, um, and I, I, I might want to talk to you about this, Jack, offline at some point, but he did a series of maps um, showing elevation, land elevation, throughout the entire Gulf Coast, all the counties along the Gulf Coast. So showing you where the land is low, um, medium, uh, and high. And uh, it's it's not an encouraging sight. And to see all these maps in, in a room spread out in an art right. gallery yeah. is, is a challenging sight. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out how to get more people to see it. We've shown it here at the Contemporary Arts Center, but it needs to be seen by more people. But back to the story today, Antarctica's coastal nightmare, the West Antarctic ice sheet saw its melt rate increase from 53 billion tons per year to 159 billion tons a year during the 1992 to 2017 period. So I think this is what has us all so confused. On the one hand, yes, you know what? I've seen eagles lately too. Um, uh, I have an art project in St. Bernard Parish in Poitras, and there are two eagles that I have seen there, which is just 20 minutes outside the city. Um, I see eagles on the Wolf River on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi where I hang out sometimes. And, um, yeah, I see those signs too, but but, but, but that's, then, that's but then I hear about the ocean rise. About the bald eagle. I'm sorry? That, that's my next book, by the way, uh, which is a natural and cultural history of the bald eagle. Oh, I'm going to be wanting to see that. But, 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 um, but Jack, what, what about these, these, um, uh, you know, yeah. uh, the predictions are anywhere from three to sure. six and more feet by the end of this century. So, right. you know, with all of what you're saying about, you know, the, the resurgence mm-hmm. of, of life, yeah. 
what? How, how do we deal with that? What What does that mean? What you know? Well, yeah. I mean, as I as I point out in the in the epilogue book, our best defense uh, against sea level rise is, is to restore the living shoreline, those coastal marshes, the mangroves, and, and the southern regions, and um, those, those seagrass beds and those oyster beds. Uh, not concrete seawalls. Concrete seawalls contribute to erosion. Uh, I mean, and, and the other thing we, we have to do, we have to face the reality that we're going to be forced to move back uh, away from the shoreline. Again, I'm a historian talking about the future, and I really, I'll think of myself in the hot water talking about this. And I, I get emails from people saying, oh, you got it all wrong, blah, 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 blah. And, again, I'm not a prognosticator, but the way I see it, and, and based upon uh, my understanding of history and the trajectory of history into the future, is that we will indeed, in certain areas, be forced to... I mean, Galveston Island, they may have to abandon that island sometime in the future. Um, and to be honest with you, um, and my, my uh, you know, and I... I hate to say this, but um, because I, I like Galvestonians, I love Galveston uh, itself, but it really doesn't belong there on a barrier island. That barrier island should be a barrier island that's protecting the mainland, not uh, supporting uh, this, this uh, you know, this built environment infrastructure. Um, and that's what will go first, is that infrastructure is not necessarily people's houses, um, you know, it's the storm water systems, it's the fresh water systems uh, that'll be affected first. But again, our best defense against all of this is developing the living shoreline. And I, as I see it, we are we will be forced to move back away as the tide rises, uh, as the sea rises. Um, but um, and as it does, nature itself will adapt if we allow it to. Um, and nature is comes back when, when, uh, from self-inflicting damage much quicker than it does from from the damage that that human behavior or human activity causes. Uh, I'm not terribly worried about nature itself dealing with sea level rise because it has over the eons. The, as I write in the book, the Gulf of Mexico has been up and down. The, the level of the Gulf of Mexico has been up and down over the eons, you know, five, six, a dozen times. Um, and um, uh, it, it can handle itself. Um, but um, what we need to do is not try to uh, substitute something artificial in the place of nature. And that's what we have the tendency to do. That's in our DNA. That's in the DNA of engineers. That's in the DNA of scientists. And just the very word that scientists use, management, drives me absolutely nuts. And they're good-minded people. They're well-intended people. Um, but sometimes they take management a little bit too far. That means management can turn into human manipulation. And that's not the best way to live with the natural world. All right. Now, I, I, again, I'm I'm with you. I, I I want that to be what happens. I, I'm going to read one last dispiriting um, section. This from Jeff Goodell's book, and and this is his kind of his most dire prediction. Okay, um, and then um, we'll close out with your positive um, uh, 
<laughs> encouragement. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think that's what a lot of people feel, that, okay, we're going to figure it out, because there is one thing about history that I learned as a student myself, and I was something of a, a his, let's call me an amateur history student, and I noticed that just when you think a line is going to continue in a certain direction, up, down, flat, it takes uh, takes a little curveball and goes yeah. off in a yeah, different yeah. way. And so nothing just keeps going in the same trajectory, and we can count on that. And uh, I will, I'll read something positive that uh, he wrote also. Um, uh, but first I'm going to read this because this really st- stood out for me too. So he was talking about how people are only barely likely to notice the change you know, we, we we kind of notice how tall our kids get all of a sudden is how he leads into this. And he says, in a similar way, people will notice higher tides that roll in more and more frequently. Water will pool longer in streets and parking lots. Trees will turn brown and die as they suck up salt water. Then a storm will hit, and it will push an astonishing amount of water into the city. Some people will move to new, higher buildings. Others will simply move to higher ground. Roads will be raised. Solar panels will bloom on rooftops. Abandoned houses will linger like ghosts filling with feral cats and other refugees looking for their own high ground. Water will continue to creep in. It will have a metallic sheen. It will smell bad. Ah, Kids will get strange rashes and fevers. More people will leave. Sea walls will crumble. In a few decades, low-lying neighborhoods will be knee-deep. Wooden houses will collapse into a sea of soda bottles, laundry detergent jugs, and plastic toothbrushes. Human bones floated out of caskets will be a common sight. Treasure hunters will kayak in using small robotic submersibles to search for coins and jewelry. Modern office buildings and condo towers will lead as the saltwater corrodes the concrete foundation and eats at the structural beams. Fish will school in classrooms. Oysters will grow on submerged light poles. Religious leaders will blame sinners for the drowning of the city. Journalists will arrive on float planes and write about the return of nature. But mostly, the city will be forgotten, one of many places lost to the attacking sea. In some distant future, someone or some human-like machines may explore the sunken city and find bowling balls, stainless steel knives, gold wedding bands, and ceramic tiles. They may wonder about the people who live there and what their lives were like and what they were thinking as their world went under. That's a pretty dire picture. On the other hand, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. On the other hand, he says, during his reporting for the book, he encountered a lot of thoughtful civic leaders and politicians who were thinking hard about how to reimagine the future of a world of fast-rising seas. In Norfolk, Virginia, city officials have collaborated with the U.S. Navy and university researchers to come up with a comprehensive development plan for the year 2100 to help identify which neighborhoods are most at risk and to find the counties where people may need to find shelter, new shelter. Um, uh, In the U.K., the government has encouraged a gentle retreat from the coast through a managed realignment that encourages marshes and other coastal habitats to migrate inland, creating a natural buffer against the rising seas. In the Netherlands, they've been thinking about how to battle the sea for a 1,000 years and are now exporting that knowledge around the world. 
Wherever there is a city at risk of flooding, you're likely to find a Dutch engineer offering or at least often selling a solution. These initiatives are all important, but they are just preliminary sketches of the changes that need to be made in some coastal uh, in the decades ahead. The sheer economic chaos that looms for some coastal regions is hard to grasp, much less anticipate and prepare for. Nor do these initiatives begin to grapple with the political and psychological trauma of losing entire cities. So um, I know you're afraid to predict the future. This guy actually is obviously the opposite. He's going right there and saying, hey, this, yeah. is, this is a pretty serious situation. And um, I think one of the things, two things for me that are paramount is that, one, it is so confusing between our natural optimistic um, nature. I think humans are very optimistic, even if we're pessimistic. I always say I'm an existentialist. I'm, a, I'm, I'm pessimistic on the one hand, but I function as an optimist. I think that's the only choice we really have in a way. But at the same time, um, we've, we are faced with some, uh, it, it, if nothing else, if not a long-term uh, dire consequence, we're, we're faced with a very difficult time ahead. There was another story today. I don't know if you saw that, an opinion piece in the New York Times. I meant to bring it, and I didn't. But um, it was a woman uh, who wrote that, uh, I say it was a woman. I'm not positive of that, but anyway. The writer said, the, the, you know, it, it's not that we have to save the planet. The planet will be okay. It's been through it. As you said, it's been up, it's been down, it's been freezing cold, it's been really hot, it's been all kinds of things. But it's civilization that we need to save. Um, we have to figure out how to move back from the edge of, of catastrophe that we're at. Your final words. My final words. Uh uh, Jeff Goodell and I are on the same page and I hope someday I'm able to sit down and sip tequila with him. Uh, and, you know, writers like us, environmental writers, really struggle to um, uh, to write about more than just doom and gloom. And, uh, and I think it's it's important to maintain that, that optimistic attitude, as I was su suggesting before. Um, and um, and as, as far as our strategies in dealing with the future, uh, I you know I make the same very argument in my book, and he, he and he's you know he says it so eloquently too, and I very much appreciate that about him. But if we're going to talk across the divide, uh, we have to have that optimistic attitude. Uh, people don't want to hear. Uh, doom and gloom all the time, um, particularly if they they are doubters. And you can't you can't start a conversation uh, with with the doubters if you go in there as a pessimist. And and I think that he very much recognizes that. And the other environmental writers who, who I know very well, such as Cynthia Barnett and uh, Jordan Fisher Smith and, and many others, uh, agree uh, agree about that. You know, and it is. It really is not about destroying the planet. It's about destroying human civilization, as I pointed out in our in my book. That you know, humans may not even exist on on this earth as, as long as the dinosaurs did. Um, and the dinosaurs had nothing to do with their their own destruction. Um, but at the same time, we're very inventive people, right? Uh, we're survivors, uh, and so uh, I have hope that we'll we'll figure this out. Um, and um, uh, and there are those ups and downs, um, um, both uh, within 
with, with regard to the, the, the sea with the water on Earth, but there are also there's parallel ups and downs in in our in the leadership and in, in um, our, our political leadership uh, in our own trajectory and uh, toward our, our future. And um, but I I I think that you know I have a 13 year old daughter. And I joke that she'll inherit waterfront property in uh, central Florida, where we live now, right in the middle of the state. Um, but I, I'm really hopeful that her generation um, uh, can see a clearer future than what the baby boom generation uh, and the previous generation, the so-called greatest generation, has, has seen. Well, I'm with you. I, I uh, agree, and I hope you're right. Um, I pick up fossils on the beach, uh, uh, on the Wolf River, above the interstate all the time and think, wow, how did that get here? And it's White Sand Beach, and I know that at one time the Gulf was there, and I guess it's going to come again. Um, but um, I guess I just want to be ready for it, and I hope everybody works as hard as you and Jeff have worked to try to get it across, and I hope that folks who are resisting this story keep their ears and their hearts uh, open and, and keep working on it. Listen, Jack, stay in touch with me as things develop, and please share with me um, how the story develops on your end. I, I, I definitely enjoyed very much hearing from you. You're a, an eloquent and clear speaker, and uh, we need to hear from you more, not just once. So thank it's you very much. my pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Here in New Orleans, this is Crosstown Conversations. This is Gene Nathan. Thank you all for listening. I, I know some of you have been out there taking it all in. Um, have hope. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.